This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. On this podcast, Katie Halper of WBAI's The Katie Halper Show joins us to discuss the role of politics in the Trumpian landscape we all inhabit. She's an astute commentator and a comedian, a writer and broadcaster who brings us her insights as we look to understand the political contours of the present. And then playwright Murray Mednick and actor from Homeland Maury Sterling join us to discuss the play Mayakovsky and Stalin, now playing at the Lounge Theater in Hollywood. This remarkable play is about two distantly related suicides in 1930 and 1932 in the young Soviet Union, one of the giant of Russian poetry, Vladimir Mayakovsky, and two years later of Stalin's wife, Nadezhda Alilyeva. In many respects, the play is also about the gap between the stated ideals of the revolution and the harsh reality and fear of repression that increasingly dominated the lives of Soviet citizens as Stalin rose to become supreme leader. We'll get their take on this and the challenges that Maury Sterling faced in characterizing Stalin in his incredible performance. All this when we return with Jacobin Radio. Welcome to Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm joined now by producer and director Alan Minsky and Katie Halper. Katie is the host of the Katie Halper Show at WBAI. You can catch her podcast at Patreon. On iTunes and SoundCloud, but also for extra goodies, extended interviews, um, and bonus content at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. So Katie's in town, and we decided to take advantage of this to talk about the state of play in the country, the elections, the state of independent media. And right now, I think we also want to reclaim the color red. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's because Susie took the red mic. I took the red mic, and apparently Trump tweeted red wave. And of course, he got that all wrong. But we want to say red that used to properly belong to the reds, not the Republicans. I guess maybe they've been revolutionary for a while, but only reactionary revolutionary. Anyway, Katie, so... I look good in red, too, so it's an extra (laughs) bonus, yeah. How do you see what happened in the elections, the primary, the elections this week? Well, I think that you have political, for example, writing, you know, down goes socialism, because not every DSA candidate won. And I think one of the really dangerous things about corporate media is that they pretend to be objective and they pretend they're just reporting on what happens and they're just assessing what happens and assessing kind of how Dems can win and they're they're free of ideology while the socialists are ideological and they can't see reality and they're in denial and all that stuff. And of course that's not true. And of course the way that the corporate media frames stories and even what they cover reveals their ideological commitments and bias. They pretend that they stand on objectivity right. and neutrality. And most people should know there's just no such thing as neutrality. Right. exactly. You know, the you, more you own your bias, actually, the closer you are to objective. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well put. Yeah. And that's what okay. we do right here. We say we don't just promote free speech, but we practice it. So, Katie Halbert, you're uh, from New York City, and how does it look from there after Ocasio-Cortez Well, I actually interviewed her before she won, which was exciting. Mm. And I think people are inspired. I think people – what's really interesting is that centrist Dems can't quite deal with her win because they are so invested in the Bernie bro narrative, which claims that anyone who embraces socialism is a straight white male. And they don't really know what to do about Ocasio, so a lot of them have embraced her. 
But even then, they're trying to do, thank God they practice this one too, which is that if you are not a straight white man, if you're a woman, if you're a person of color, and you are embracing not even, not just socialism, but kind of more progressive, insurgent, democratic stuff, you have internalized it. You've internalized misogyny. I mean, I'm accused of having my politics because I'm trying to get attention from men. Because, you know, you know, we all know that that's the trope. That's the way you get dates is I by think that was declaring Gloria, yourself. Gloria Steinem's yeah, she did. Made, she yeah. did. Yeah, Where the Boys Are. She did. I made a video of that to the song <laughs> Where the Boys Are and showed all the women who were doing that. Well, and now we have a second uh, card-carrying member of DSA who's uh, also a straight white male. Oh, sorry. It's an it's a American-Palestinian right. woman from Detroit right. who's going to almost certainly, because she's won, in a heavily, won the primary in a heavily uh, Democratic district, that she's going to join Ocasio-Cortez. So the socialists are getting swept. Now, there were zero socialists in the last, uh, the current House of Representatives, so it's infinitely more will be right. in the next one. And, and again, right. all these straight white males. And we right. actually have the term socialism now as part of our... Our national discourse. Right. And I think we should just pause for a moment and think about how important that is and really how much that signals the end of the Cold War. As much as they want to go back to red baiting, it's really gone. Oh, well, yeah, and the and, Russia stuff. Too, but yeah. I mean, the, the other thing is that I really oh. like about Ocasio Cortez, and I'll just you know do this extremely rapidly, is that she's even showing up the so called liberal left media and where she called Cuomo to task when he talked about <laughs> the sticker shock of single payer and how irresponsible it is for those people who support it not to tell the American people how expensive it's going to be. And she turned it around, of course, and And talked about how it's expensive, not just that insurance is, but she says we only have empty pockets when it comes to the morally right things to do. Right. No one asks how you're going to fund wars. Tax cuts for billionaires. And when it comes to unlimited wars, she said we seem to be able to invent that money very easily. And then to remind the American public, or at least the CNN viewing audience, and all the people get it because the clip has gone viral, that every other industrially developed high-tech society in the world has universal health care. Right, and they the don't ask these stupid questions. And right. Katie, uh, MSNBC, if Bernie Sanders gets the nomination of the Democratic Party and Donald Trump and the Republican Party, who do they support? <laughs> Unclear. I, I think they just won't cover Bernie at all, or they'll say they'll cover what they see as blunders on his part. I think, I mean, this has been said by lots of people, and I think it's true, which is that a lot of liberals hate leftists more than they hate Trump. And one of the examples of that, or a piece of evidence of that, I think, is that they really vilify the left in some ways more than they vilify Trump, or they vilify Trump, but then they vote for his expanded military budgets. Those are the actual Democrats. And and he becomes presidential the moment he flies some uh, jet planes. Right. I I never tire of repeating, David Frum said this years ago, the Republicans fear their base, the Democrats hate theirs. Yeah, right. And that's really now what we're seeing played out. But the part of the complexity of this political moment for both Susie Weissman and Katie Halper is it's not just socialism is now in the American political discourse. There's socialism inside the Democratic Party. Right, right. Right. And this is, of course, raising that question that people on the left have struggled with for the longest forever, really. Like, is it possible, you know, to take over the corporate Dems? And this is a very big question, of course, and, you know, not one that we're going to answer in a minute. But let's get some ideas on this. Well, I want to just say one thing, because we're talking about media bias and stuff, is that David Sirota had a really good tweet, I think, where he said, let's be clear, those cheering Abdullah Sayed's loss are celebrating a big win for a huge private health insurer, which bankrolled the effort to crush him. Yes, Al Sayed had Bernie Sanders and Ocasio, but his opponent had Blue Cross and its death can of cash. Not a fair fight. And this is the primary for governor of um, 
Michigan. And here in California, the person who killed single payer in this completely Democratic state was, of course, a Democrat. Exactly. His name's Anthony Rendon. Right, And he's right. running against Maria Estrada. Anthony Rendon, I bet you, is going to be the best-funded state assembly candidate in the history of American right. politics right. funded by the insurance company. And this is when and the California it, Assembly twice voted for single payer and still it doesn't get to the table to be, you know, right. now that we have a Democratic governor. And what these, what this media, this so-called objective corporate media does is they take a victory over El Said and instead of saying he came so much closer, he started on the single digits, instead of saying that, they pretend that it's his ideas that aren't popular when really, of course, it's the media, it's the money that his opponent had and all of a sudden those things are invisible. It's all about when the socialist loses, it's because his ideas, his or her ideas aren't popular. And when a socialist wins, it's because it's a fluke. That's how they frame it. So what about the identity side? Of oh, yeah. This? So the identity politics stuff is it's so funny. They really it's like for me, it's very clear. And for a lot of leftists, I think it's clear, which is that if all things being equal, you have two identical politicians, same policies. And one's a straight white man and one's a lesbian of color or a woman of color, whatever. You go for that person. You go for the person who represents less represented population. But barring the identical policies, which is never, almost never the case, you look at the policies. And what's so stupid about just focusing on the identity of one person, but this really is part of kind of neoliberal feminism, I think, where people just identify with one person's journey as if the journey of Hillary Clinton is more important than the policies that affect countless women. And one simple example of that is we saw, you know, just going back to the primary, and I don't think this is relitigating the primary because these same issues are still here. The same media bias is still here. But you look at the fight for 15, Sanders was for raising it to 15. Hillary was fine with 12. He kind of pushed her into supporting 15. And she got mad at him for that. Yeah. And of course, you know, oh, how dare he? He's a bossy misogynist wagging his finger. Of course, Bernie Sanders <laughs> wags his finger at everyone regardless of gender. And I think it's a bit anti-Semitic to not embrace the finger wagging that has defined our people for so many centuries. <laughs> but I think that if you don't get that, forget like class consciousness, forget saying that we need to organize along class lines. If Even if you just have a like kind of a more limited identity politics take on the world, Literally, the people who make up minimum wage workers, the majority of them are women and people of color. So if you oppose something that makes their lives better and gives them a living wage, you're not a feminist and you're not anti-racist. You, again, are prioritizing a very superficial metric, which is Hillary Clinton, over the lives of people of color and women. Countless, you know, many more than hers. So it's really dangerous. People aren't drawing the connecting the obvious dots. The other thing is they're totally opportunistic about it. So you have... Um, Hillary Clinton endorsing Andrew Cuomo over Cynthia Nixon. That's fine. But when Ocasio endorses a straight white man over a woman of color who's a lesbian, and those are obviously, I would like to see more of those in power. But when she does that, it's because she's sexist. If that's true, since they have no criteria, they don't offer any criteria. We do. We say policy over identity. If it is true that Ocasio is self-loathing, racist, whatever. She's internalized misogyny and racism, and that's why she's endorsing a straight white man. If that's true, then Hillary has done the same thing when she endorses a straight white man over a lesbian. And that, of course, is Andrew Cuomo over Cynthia Nixon. And if you want to take it back, because you said, Katie Halper, something about emphasizing story and not policy, right. Obama came to power because of his powerful story. Nobody right. knew anything else about him except for those who were looking and saw that he was a free trader right. and a neoliberal. Right. But, but look, people thought they projected all of 
their fantasies on him, and he won. And then right. he created so many of these policies that we're fighting right now. And to be fair, he didn't. There was no alternative to him who was a lot better. I mean, Hillary was more hawkish than he was. They were basically identical. Well, he may have been a little worse domestically. She was definitely worse foreign policy wise. Of course, he he made her Secretary of State, so he his fingerprints are all over that indirectly. But I think the Bernie election really exposed a lot of people because. I used to think that these people who are more liberal, I'm more left. I had lots of friends who were more liberal. And I kind of assumed if someone like Sanders was that viable, they would move, right? And I kind of assumed that their liberalism was based on pragmatism, which, of course, they claim. Except the problem is that all the ideas that Sanders is putting forward from single payer to free college tuition, all of them are overwhelmingly popular. And there's this very ideological and dishonest or denial, I'm not sure what it is, framing that anything that's progressive is impossible. Like they're like, oh, it's I, it's not that I'm against that. It's just not popular. It'll never pass. And of course, that's not true. And of course, the other thing is that Sanders and others like Ocasio, they're shifting the Overton window, right? So it's becoming an outrageous thing to not support single payer. You have a single payer Democratic caucus and Ocasio is talking about abolishing ICE. And then people say, oh, they're not going to pass this under Trump. Okay, right. But you are preparing for when there is a Democrat and you were just making it politically toxic to not support these things. And that's a good thing. Of course, right. You no, know, I mean, can you imagine even three years ago people saying abolish ICE? Right. No, no. And the same thing with same-sex marriage. Like, you have to put that out there before it passed. People had to make the case for it. They went around and they organized people. This is another scary, dangerous thing, this idea that if you want to win back Obama voters who went to Trump, there's a scary narrative that that's mutually exclusive, that the things you have to do for that population is different for the things that you have to do to excite the base. And it's just not true. And the irony is that people who frame that as catering to racism and sexism, if that's true, then they should be concerned with Obama because he appealed to those voters and he tried to get those voters. So, again, there's just a lack of consistency. Alan, come back in on this. And I just before you do that, I want to say the other big winner was labor. And now oh, right, yeah. labor mm-hmm. is not even in, in the my, LA Times. my home state of Missouri. Oh, that's yeah, right. Missouri. And it shows not just the red state strikes, but the fact that this mm-hmm. job that the right has been doing, demonizing labor for decades and Even taking this slogan of right to work, which means right to not get paid because the unions are diminished, is not going to go. If you just listen to corporate media, you would think that the only issue out there is Russia. And we know from a recent Gallup poll that that's really not important to voters. And of course, the only people who care about Russiagate are people who already hate Donald Trump. The base doesn't care about this, and potentially reconvertible people who we can bring back don't care about this, which is an example of how there really is, I think, kind of a psychosis, I'm just going to say it, among corporate Democrats and among corporate media. They're so unwilling to look at the way that the Democrats enable Trump and drop the ball on this, that this is a perfect scapegoat. And according to that book, Shattered, which no one has managed to really, I mean, it's so solid, the reporting there, that no one's even tried to suggest it's bad reporting. But according to that book, Shattered, kind of investigative journalism about the Hillary Clinton campaign, they, the night of the election when Trump won, they over pizza said, we're going to put this on the Russians. And you can think that Russia had a role. You can think that they didn't have a role. What's clear is that it's totally, the coverage is totally disproportionate. And, you know, it's, we should be disturbed that David Frum and William Crystal have become part of the resistance. And this is scary, too. But in the main, and this is why um, independent media is so important, because 
The only people in mainstream media who are, for example, questioning, you know, intervening in Syria, the only people who are saying that stuff are Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingrams. They really are. This is where the anti-war resistance is coming from outside of independent media. And obviously, we can't have those people framing the anti-war resistance. So that's why independent media is so powerful. And of course, the real resistance to Trump comes through independent media, which talks about the things that will excite the base and get people out to vote, as opposed to this totally insular thing that's based on data from their cocktail parties, where everyone cares only about Russia. And this shaming of there's another thing, which is the shaming of third party voters, regardless of what you think of third party voters, if your priority is to defeat Trump, if he's this unprecedented existential threat, which is what the MIC resistance is saying, you don't spend time crapping on potential voters. If the most important thing is to get Trump defeated, then you do everything you can to get as many people as you can to vote against him. I mean, we saw this in, was it in Michigan, where on Tuesday, I think Ohio, Ohio, right, Ohio, where the third party person who they're blaming the Republican victory on, his, the percentage he got was so much smaller than the percentage by which the Republican... About half of the loss differential, yeah. Yeah. So why would you be focusing on that? And there is a real thing about voter entitlement. Like, it's on you to realize why you should be voting. And again, morality and ethics aside, this is just a nightmare, strategically speaking. You know, all the stuff they accuse us of, which is purity politics and being self-indulgent, that's what they're actually doing. And if they cared about defeating Trump more than punching left, they would not be focusing just on Russia and third-party voters. Okay, so Katie Halpert, this is this incredibly dynamic political moment, and you obviously have your finger on the pulse of things going on from the perspective of the Upper West Side or the WBAI studios, right? right? But what do you think people really need to focus on on these next few months and then all the way through to 2020? Is it to really build up a progressive vision and support it, or how does pragmatism play into it? So what's not only the prognosis, what uh, do you have for your prescription? Well, right. I mean, there is this idea that these policies are only popular in on the coasts, right? James Thompson, who I interviewed, he was kind of an insurgent, not a socialist, but he's a progressive. I asked him if he's a socialist. He said he's not. He's a progressive. He won. So the idea that these ideas don't take hold in the Midwest, I think, are mistaken. Of course, you have to tailor your messaging a little bit. But we also saw Bernie Sanders won the primaries in, in the Rust Belt. These ideas aren't radical. That's the thing. Single payer is not radical. And then you get these polls that show that it is. But most of the polls show that it's not. And again, this is a question just like the media, the corporate media claims to be objective and just reporting on what's out there. Even polls, you know, the way that they frame questions, of course, change the results. I know a lot of people who are very progressive and they're very invested in the idea that these ideas just don't work and they're not sellable and people won't vote for them. But the data contradicts that. I get why people have, I think it's kind of an old school red scare framing. Also, really quickly, another reason that the independent media is so important is because not just the Russiagate narrative, but we have people smearing people who are skeptical of things as Putin operatives or Putin trolls or Putinists. And that is so scary. There is a total shutdown. You say one thing, which isn't Putinist. You're just maybe questioning a narrative. I have no love for Putin. That doesn't mean that I think it's strategic to only talk about Russia. And you're smeared as a Russia operative or a Putin fan 
or um, someone who's drunk the Kool-Aid, which is so ironic because the people who drunk the Kool-Aid, of course, are the people who just talk about Russia all the time. And they don't care that people who they need to reach don't care about Russia because they are so ideologically blind and they're so invested in not taking any responsibility and not changing the corporate wing of the Democratic Party. I mean, I don't know if they are really willing to. Oh, and this is the biggest thing. Sorry, the last thing. This is insane to me. This narrative that Trump is an existential threat with dementia. Therefore, we want him to be harder on people like Putin, a nuclear power. What do people think is what is the takeaway for these Democrats? And I understand I'm not a humanitarian interventionist because I don't believe in interventionism. I don't think the U.S. has done or the right militarism. thing. Or Yeah, <laughs> I don't think the U.S. has done the right thing since World War II. But let's just say you're, you see it as humanitarian interventionism. Do you want to do that under Trump? You have to pick a narrative. The guy's uh, incompetent, dangerous, could end the world. In which case you don't want him being they want him to be as as provocative with like instead of wanting less militarism and being happy that for whatever reason, Trump isn't ratcheting things up, although he is. I mean, that's a big thing. All these Democrats were goading him into bombing Syria. And maybe they should be afraid that their foreign policy aligns with someone like John Bolton's, because I don't really see the difference right now between what they're advocating and what he's advocating. Same thing with North Korea. What do they want? They are so afraid of Donald Trump having a victory that they'd rather risk nuclear war. Well, and that's the other side of it, Katie Halpy. We're going to have to wrap it up. Okay. But what's interesting is the Democrats are the war hawks. Yes. The, it, the so-called lefty liberal media is cheering them on. Yeah. And what they're really doing is deflecting from any blame for the loss of right. the election because of their policies, which is where you began. Right. The corporate neoliberal policies that have proven in country after country and in election after election that are unpopular. And that's why, what is it, point four percent of the electorate thinks russia is important it's it's right. minuscule right. people care about it is important it's very jobs, very low on the right exploding rents homelessness right. Right. all of the issues that people care about are the issues the democrats and the leadership have no interest right. in paying right. attention to and katie halper for all of you out there because we're on the internet you can listen to katie Tell us where they can find you. So I think I'm going to start doing 5 o'clock on Tuesdays on WBAI, but you can also find me on iTunes and SoundCloud and Patreon.com slash The Katie Halper Show where you can get bonus content. Okay, Alan Minsky, thanks for joining us. And Katie Halper, thank you so much for joining us on Jacobin Radio. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We have playwright Murray Mednick and actor Maury Sterling in studio to discuss the play Mayakovsky and Stalin, which is playing at the Lounge Theater in Hollywood through August 19th. And the play is really remarkable, and it's about two distantly related suicides mm-hmm. in 1930 and 1932 in the young Soviet Union, that of the giant of Russian poetry, Vladimir Mayakovsky, and two years later of Stalin's wife, Nadezhda Alilieva, and in many respects, the plays also, I think about the gap between the stated ideals of the revolution and the harsh reality and fear of repression that increasingly dominated the lives of Soviet citizens as Stalin rose to become supreme leader. So we're going to welcome Murray Mednick and Maury Sterling and get their take on the challenges of first presenting this play, writing this play, and uh, for Maury, playing Stalin and <laughs> characterizing him in what is really an incredible 
performance. And Murray Mednick is a pioneer of the off-Broadway movements in the 60s and 70s, a playwright in residence at Theater Genesis. He's also the founding artistic director of the Padua Hills Playwright Workshop from 78 to 95, and he's been richly rewarded with Rockefeller Foundation grants, a Guggenheim Fellowship, American Theater Critics Association, Best New Play Citation, and so much more. Maury Sterling, if this was TV and not radio, you'd immediately recognize him and run up and ask him how he does all that surveillance <laughs> in Homeland, where he plays Matt and actually, you know, inserts himself as a into a troll farm run by... Weird forces, right-wing, mm-hmm. alt-right forces, let's just say. But he's also known for uh, playing Rafferty in the comedy film Beverly Hills Chihuahua and Lester Tremor in the action film Smoke and Aces. But here we're going to talk about his role as Stalin, which I think he played quite convincingly. So let's just start with some of the themes of the play. You know, and I just maybe wanted to say that the period that's under examination in this play. It's really like the culmination of the 20s. The revolution takes place in 1917, but after the Civil War, there's this flowering of literature and art. Just briefly. Briefly. Well, I'm going to say before it gets shut down. And then increasingly, it becomes what the writer Max Eastman said, artists in uniform, strangled and suffocated by Soviet socialist realism and everything else. So sent away to camp. (laughs) Is <laughs> sent away to all kinds of camps, exactly. So maybe we could just begin with the main themes of the play, Murray, and sort of how you began to explore this sort of... Well, I, I was, I think the main thing was the correspondence between the two suicides and that what brought them together, what brought Stalin and Mayakovsky together was Lily Brick. So I found out about the uh, Brick arrangement which was a menage a trois. It was a three-sided arrangement, which her husband went along with. And um, the suicide of Mayakovsky, which he was 36 when he shot himself. So it goes on into the mid-30s, I think, and starts before the revolution. The stirrings of the revolution, the revolution, and then what happened afterward. And, of course, Mayakovsky had become a convinced Bolshevik by, I think, 1914, and he wrote all these poems that some were highly critical right. of for being too uh, much focused on industrialization and mechanical sort of things. But others, you know, well, he clearly was interested, a giant. Yeah, he was interested in in a real revolution of mores and, and attitudes and lifestyles. And he was a little out of his mind, actually, with the futurism stuff. But the other thing I think that you bring out, and for people outside of the then Soviet Union or Russia after, probably know nothing Mm -hmm. of Lilia Brick and her husband, Ossip, who's this literary critic, and she becomes amused to the avant-garde poets of her generation. You know, like, how did she do that? Do we know? Well, she was an actress. Actress. She was an actress and a performer. Her enthusiasm was uh, sound film. And one of the uh, people who I attended the play with, who grew up in the Soviet Union, said that the actress was a dead ringer. It was, you know, just she a She looked stunt, a lot like her, yeah. A lot like her yeah. and played her very well. And so um, maybe we could set the scene a little bit for um, the listeners about the sort of atmosphere of opening up in the 20s. Since they opened up, you know, they questioned everything. Alexandra Kollontai famously 
preached free love but and serial monogamy, <laughs> and used to. And I should just say this because I said all the time to my students. She said, "You make love like you drink a glass of water." And Lennon retorted, but who wants to drink from a dirty glass? Yeah. And, you know, and that, to me, sort of <laughs> encapsulates the kind of you know, friction. And delusion. Yeah. So go ahead. So like, how did you decide to put you know, that relationship at the center? Well, it's stage-worthy. You, know, you have people talking to each other. The conflicts are uh, right there. You, mm-hmm. know, you don't have to mess around with them or create them. They occur naturally biographically, as it were, historically. And the consequences for them were were dire. It's just a natural thing for me to write about. And they're they're very stage-worthy in that a scene could follow a scene without any introduction. You just show the scenes, and you don't need sets, and you don't need a lot of paraphernalia. You don't need props. You you just need the characters. And then they, they kind of step on stage and play their scene. And I should ask Maury, too, who plays Stalin, like, was this difficult? Because it's not like, you know, an action play in the sense that the action comes from the words, but there's a lot of, I guess, action behind the words. So was this difficult then to portray this character of Stalin? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> Murray doesn't know this, but I was firmly convinced it was never going to happen and I wasn't going to do it until the last second. And then I realized, oh, man, this is happening. Um, Murray... The way we chose to do the play, and sort of I think the, Murray's vision from the get-go is very specific, and it's heavy on language, which through rehearsal we came to all appreciate more and more. But yes, it puts a lot of pressure on – I had to bring as much of the character as I could because the scenes are so simple, which means you can't get away with hiding. You really have to have full moments in, in all this kind of language. So yes, it was, it was a bit terrifying. It was just terrifying to take on Stalin anyways, but you know. All, all the actors are on stage all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're sitting in the back. I in think the back. there's nine or ten right. chairs. Right. That was my original vision of the thing, those chairs in the back. Because I've been always troubled by the difficulties of entrances and exits and always thought there was something cheap about them. You open a door and walk in, blah, 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 or come from the wings. I always wanted to have the actors on stage. And my last play, which was called Villon, about the French poet, I had the actors on the side, and then they would knock on an invisible door and go, go on stage. There was a bunch of boards that were a stage. So this time I thought I'd have them on stage facing the audience. And it worked in a way that's inexplicable, but it worked beautifully. And, and all of so ent- entering, you stand up. To leave, you sit. That's how you'd make your entrances and exits. And it really worked for me, anyway. And for somebody in the audience, it works as well because I glanced at them to see if I could find any expressions as, you know, the words were being you know, said to no, see if they sit, react, but they don't. No, no, they just sit quietly. Sit quietly, but surely it must inform the way that you speak when you speak. It, it, it does. I, I think the best part, I really, it took me a while to get unself-conscious, so I've really started to listen to the play more as I sit there and I'm watching the other actors. 
it's been great. I mean, it's just an enjoyable. It's turning out to be an enjoyable thing for me to too when I'm not doing something to just sit there and listen and hear more of the play, more of the parallels between Mayakovsky talking about sacrifice, followed a, by a scene by Stalin talking about sacrifice, and and Nadja talking about the insects of the Soviet sort of Politburo, and then Mayakovsky saying you're all insects, and sort of these neat language parallels. I didn't hear them until last weekend because I've been so self-absorbed, yeah. but. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I hope the audience is getting that. There's so much to explore here, but you have these two suicides, one in 1930 and one in 1932, and they don't really know each other, these no, characters. No, they didn't. And in one sense, I think it's open to discussion about why did Mayakovsky commit suicide? Was that he felt suffocated as a poet or he was disappointed in love or he was being constrained there's, as there's an no, artist? There's no one reason for that kind of thing. Yeah. He was a complicated guy, and a little bit probably past his past his time. But he um, he was very screwed up, and, <laughs> and when you get into it, it makes sense that he commits suicide once you learn a lot about him. His poetry is veers from the abstract to the overly lyrical, to mixed metaphors to uh, just ranting, and um, he was put down a lot when he was young, by students, you know, because they had him reading all over the Soviet Union. After the revolution, they had him conducting readings and workshops, like we do here. And um, they didn't like him much, the students. So they, 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 there would be these jeering contests. They would jeer at him, and he would jeer back. And meanwhile, he was conducting this affair with various women, including... Uh, Lily. Lily. But he was actually living with Lily and her husband, right? And Partially. No, part-time. Uh, part-time. Yeah. And amazingly, it was no problem for the husband, it seems. No, but I didn't <laughs> get into him too deeply. There may be some problems there that I haven't uncovered. Right. But what's interesting, too, is that at this time in the 20s, there's this vibrant discussion going on about the relationship of literature and revolution and the role of the artist and it's kind of like a heavy burden in one sense, for I, I would think, for the poet to kind of express the devotion for the revolution and the ideals. And on the other hand, you know, as that power play goes on in the 30s and Stalin comes out on top and then really starts to crush any form of resistance, to feel the suffocation of uh, that. Mayakovsky felt it before that. Right after, by 1920, I would say, I'm just guessing, really. He was sick of, sick of the revolution, and he knew it was full of baloney. You know, he saw people coming home without arms and legs, and, you know, he wasn't... Um, Out of the Civil War. He wasn't crazy about that revolution to begin with. Yeah, well, it's, it doesn't come out in his poems, I would say, in, no, in that he, part. He wanted to sound, uh, he wanted to sound right. But on the other hand, when he committed suicide, and the other great poet, Yesenin, did before that, I think in twenty six. There this were a was, bunch. There the, were quite a few. It was a signpost for the revolution. Oh, what, yeah. You know, and I think Victor Serge famously said, when the poets start committing suicide, you know the revolution's in trouble. Yeah. And, mm. and that was, you know, so true. So, okay, we'll get into Stalin and the relationship. First to literature, because it's Lilia Brick who kind of connects right. these two stories, right. right? When she writes to Stalin in... 1935, and says, how could Mayakovsky be eliminated from the Pantheon? Something right. like that, right? right? And then he corrects the mistake. Yeah, he probably never read him, you know. Right. 
And then afterwards, it became obligatory reading because Stalin said so. Yeah, <laughs> because you know? it was part of the Soviet, <laughs> the Soviet canon. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so then we get to Stalin's young wife, Nadia, in this play, Nadezhda, who is increasingly filled with despair. And you have all sorts of stuff going on, like including her assistant slash housekeeper, housekeeper Masha, yeah, housekeeper. who's religious. Yes. And then I love, actually, this part. I think some lefties might not like so much the, they don't like the interjecting part. the yeah. religion into it. But, but there was, especially, I think, after that liberatory period when workers felt they were in command of their society and then less and less so, this kind of spiritual void is you, Maury, so... You know, I think you do this almost perfectly in having Stalin's speeches, you know, doing this rote, dogmatic um, ideology, which everybody knows is a, a, a harsh contrast with reality. And it's empty and it's spiritually empty, too. Thank you for that. Except for communism. <clears throat> it wasn't empty for him in terms of communism. For he Stalin. believed in it. Yeah. yeah. That, that's, that was... One of the th- sorry to interject, but one of the things that attracted me to Stalin was his devotion to the party. It was single-minded. It was the one thing that he really cared about. And if you messed around with him, then you were really in trouble. And that side of Stalin is not very well, except for communists, it's not very well respected. But that's a real quality of Stalin that kept him all the way to a natural death. He died as an old man from old man diseases because he understood power and he understood what the power was for. It was for this idea he had about Marxist-Leninism and he kept to it through his whole life, doggedly. But I would say he subverted the very essence of it and that it's finally now... Well, he wouldn't agree with you about that. I would be killed. <laughs> There's just hey, no I don't think, doubt. <laughs> well, you might have had a chance to argue with him first. I would have said he was, you know, he... Because the essence of socialism and communism, as Marx thought, was, was democracy, that workers themselves, peasants themselves, all of them right. would determine the society. Right. So just on the party part, you're absolutely right. And I would say that party patriotism did them in because the party above everything well, else, they thought the truth there was from something, the party. They thought there was something subsequent to the party. Yeah, but which was the the worker state, and after the worker state, there would be no employer employee situation. You know, they had it worked out pretty well. I think one of the things that came up for me in playing Stalin in terms of all the big idea stuff is more a little bit of a and you know argue with me on this one, but was is, is this idea we get into these kind of political identities and religious identities of these ideas and and ultimately in a way it's it's rooted if there was a if there was a concept it's it's survivalism you know he was he was a street urchin he was beaten he he grew up with a horrible father in poverty he grew up on the streets he was a thug he was a brigand he was a marxist he was religious for a moment but then that didn't work maybe in the face of the sort of conditions of his culture and in a way we take and this is what i love about the play is is it's the power of the idea the and all of these people are taking a belief 
that they think is going to get them through. Mayakovsky, there's some great lines about Mayakovsky as you guys are discussing of sort of this des- the relationship of a desire to change and no change that we all see. And I think we're in that moment right now. I want these things to – I feel threatened, so stay the same. These things aren't working. We need change. Sort of massive upheaval, but at the same time, you then you reach back for that thing you know. And, and Stalin feel he's a survivalist. You know, give him a – in the sense of he was going to do what he needed to do to exist. If you got – one book I read said, you know, he, if you got too close to him, he killed you. Right. Because and he felt in trouble because he's vulnerable. So get rid of him. He always said if there's a person, there's a problem. No person, no, no problem. No problem. Voila. Yeah. I mean, there you Simple go. Simple solutions. Yeah. Yeah. He thought things went on in people's heads. Right. So uh, let me just say, I'm speaking with Maury Sterling, actor who portrays Stalin, Maury Mednick, playwright, who wrote this play that is currently at the Lounge Theater in Los Angeles in Hollywood. It's called Mayakovsky and Stalin. You should go to it because, above all, even though it's a play about ideas, it's surprising in every way and a delight. It's completely a delight. And I say that as somebody who's, you know, obsessed with this period. But nonetheless, I think for others who are not, there's so much in it. And there's so much that people will learn in a way because of the way that you play it, including, and I want to go back to Stalin, because his raison d'etre, his reason for being was to be in power and preserve power and eliminate any challenge real or imagined or potential. And so, like, this this relates to... Nadia's uh, suicide. But before we go there, there's, I think you have the narrator at one point, Murray, compare the sort of period of the 20s with the 60s and the sexual uh, liberation. Yeah, there were similar hopes of uh, free love, for example, was a big thing. And we had a lot of dope floating around. I don't think they had that in Russia at the time. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but they had but vodka, though. Vodka. They always have vodka. <laughs> vodka. <laughs> vodka, which means little water. Yeah. <laughs> that's really? that's oh, wow. Vada is water. But little water is vodka. <laughs> yeah. that's the you drink it like water. Right? <laughs> Sounds great. I was thinking of the turmoil. More. Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to the character of Stalin and his wife, because she's very much younger than he yeah. is. And in the play, I think you have... Stalin saying to his wife when she complains, you should get out. You should go out and do something, make something of herself. But in real life, I believe, and I, you know, I should have gone back to reread some of these biographies, but that he encouraged her to go to school. And it was there that she met with people who were highly critical of his policies, especially with the forced collectivization and the famine that ensued. And when she brought it up, I mean, that caused, you know, all of these fights because nobody contradicts a dictator, not even his wife. No. So how did you see that when you were playing Stalin, you know, the relationship that he had to his wife? Well, there's sort of maybe to backtrack a little bit. There's the research you do as an actor to try and bring as much history, which is endless in terms of subtlety, sort of to the performance. And then there's the perceived Stalin, the sort of the Stalin I was researching, and then there's the Stalin of this play and sort of the context of what the Stalin Nadja scenes ended up being. So there's there's just endless amounts, I think, to bring. Um, I, he did encourage her to do things. They had a very complicated relationship. I think they were wonderfully passionate and as rude. Um, I think they were very difficult with each other back to kind of what your question was. Yeah, this encouragement of, you know, sort of being proactive and supporting women in the movement. But, yeah, you don't challenge a dictator. You, it's all great until you cross the line. And with him, you never knew where that line was. 
I think. This kind of Murray repeatedly says in the play, which has been an interesting challenge as an actor, we didn't know what he was thinking. You know, he let everyone speak first in a meeting. He was the last to talk. He wasn't bombastic. He wasn't overt and Hitler-esque in his presentation. He was very flat and and apparently quite charming. One of the lines I read in Simon Montefiore's book was he, he ruled more by charm than by fear. And yet everyone was absolutely terrified because you couldn't read that implacability. And it's true, I think you mentioned, Murray, even in his inner circle, he cemented loyalty by also holding something against each person. So Molotov's wife was in the camps. Kaganovich's brother was in the camps. And, oh, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. He kept up saying, Molotov kept saying to Stalin, I want my wife back. And he'd say, I didn't like her, get another. You know, it was like, but he did that deliberately so that they would all tremble in fear and, and need him. Well, he might kill you, too. He'd have you shot. Right. And on the theme of suicide... There was one person in, in the inner circle, I think, in 1925, and he said, I think you should commit suicide, which was an order to commit suicide. I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's an interesting mm. aspect of it. And you kind of show Stalin is, as exemplifying the ethos of this new state. And then on the other hand, you've got this creative, passionate yeah. wife. Creative yeah, I, I was interested in, in, in the idea of belief is what started me going. You could say of Stalin that he was the top believer. He was the one, he talks about in the play, for example, of a, about a pyramid. At the top of the pyramid, there's one stone, whereas all the bottom of the pyramid is moving, moving around and has different obligations. But the top of the pyramid was one man, Stalin. And that's what, the pyramid is pointing upwards towards the completion of the revolution. And he saw himself as the one on top who was going to keep that revolution moving in that direction. And he was interrupted a few times, you know, once by Hitler <laughs> and so and, on. And Trotsky in the yeah. fight. But he also, it's really interesting because if you think about everything that he did, it's hard to imagine how one person could do so much. He even, like I know because I've been studying the left opposition, and he would have his secret police confiscate their writings and then he would go over every single word and, in fact, edit in the margins. He was like an editor as well. You know, and it was... No, it, he took notes on them. In insane control, like, that he needed to exert. Some, you sometimes. Know? You know, people have this, in my opinion, people have this monolithic version of Stalin. Mm -hmm. And I think he was much more complicated it, than that. It, I think, for example, he enjoyed taking notes on people's writings. And he did it for himself in case he got an idea about the state or about people or about the party. You know, to use against to them. To use against them, yeah. So how did you see, and I'm going to say this as playwright and actor, that the characters in the play, even though Mayakovsky became disillusioned with the ideals, fully supported them. They were in favor of the revolution. They wanted to see a new form of society that liberated humanity and allowed people to realize their most creative yeah, potential. I, I think Mayakovsky had his doubts from the beginning. You think so? Yeah. Okay, so, but how, in a way, did you see, because I think one of the things that comes out is that the new society repressed, you know, the most basic fundamental needs in a sense of people's needs to be in control of themselves, to have some autonomy over their, what they do in life. 
And here they're watching around the corner because someone might report them and Stalin, you know, they may end up having to deal with. Yeah, that's when it became a police state. Yeah. Before that, there was just, you know, drinking and shooting in the streets. Yeah. Okay. That's you know, true. just drinking and shooting in the streets. <laughs> the drinking never stopped. They, choose, they, would choose, <laughs> they would choose up sides, you know. Right, right, right. So, but I think the other side of it is that the play seems to be about despair. No, I think the play is about belief. <laughs> about relief? Belief. Oh, belief. Okay. So, go ahead. Talk a little bit about that. It's the, uh, well, like one believes in God. It's that strong. If, if believers in God are not going to be shaken generally. They don't, may not be able to explain to you what God is, but, when, but they believe in God, and believe in it so much that they'll vote for Donald Trump. Okay, so now you're taking, you mean in general, but not so. <laughs> There's so many parallels well, no, they, they believe it's a religious obligation. How did you see Nadezhda then? Or she my- was, Nadezhda was thought of as a sick woman. She was thought as neurotic. And the research that I did manage to do on her, she was quite neurotic. She stayed in her room for long periods of time. She didn't play with her kids much. She moped and um, complained. And uh, she was brighter, I think, than she had a chance to demonstrate. Stalin didn't give her too much attention. And um, she came from a very communist family, by the way. An aristocratic family. Right. And Stalin was friends with her parents. Right. Very much so. He met her, actually, when they were giving him cover when he was on the run at one point. In Georgia. Yeah. But, okay, so then, on the other hand, you could say that being the wife of the dictator would be hard for anybody to do. Yes. (laughs) For sure. So how did you come up with the idea of these two suicides that are alongside each other two years apart but not really related but then related to what was going on I think in the society I I didn't come up with it it just came up in me (laughs) Maury Stalin's relationship to his wife because it's said that afterwards he you know I think he didn't show himself didn't show himself for weeks he went silent yeah so he went silent how much do we know that it affected him I think what's come up for me in doing the research, it, it, we have all these ideas about these people. I've been flipped numerous times on kind of what, who I thought Stalin was and the complexity of Stalin now, his sensitivity now, his, his intelligence, his, his literary knowledge, his insecurities, his neuroses, his passion, his rage, his implacabilities, all these different qualities that he had. It was funny just listening to you guys. I, you know, we talk about sort of replacement. One one entity, in this case the czar, it sort of leaves and is replaced by another. But sort of aspects of royalty and rank don't change in the sense of, yes, I tell you you're wrong. I don't like how you're doing it. But the human replacement is still a king and royalty in the sense of the way he talked about his court and the way they all ruled and lived together was just the new embodiment, right, of rulership. And in that sense, it it feels like what I've learned from the play in terms of who Nadja was, there's a line in the play. She came from very good breeding. This is still (laughs) royal living of – 
wealth and traveling to the dachas. And yes, she was bipolar and the like. But this is still about status and rule and almost like in a way it would be fun to do this play as sort of the real housewives of the Russian Revolution (laughs) of the drama of these people and these characters. And that's what's always great as an actor is you kind of get into that stuff as well, which is where the conflict lives. You could, I think, do a whole play between these two in terms of how they were with each other and the mood. They sounded a lot like moody children while killing millions. And, you know, she was complicit. She would go and listen and spy and take notes. And I don't know how much we get that into the play because I think we're sort of in the ending moments of her life that she's in this like Murray keeps saying, which is really what I do think the play is about, is the power of belief. She's in her sort of swan song of who am I? All my communist stuff is dying. What do I do now? This is really good. And in real life, let's say in history, there is some mystery or conspiracy surrounding both of their suicides, both Mayakovsky mm-hmm. and yep. uh, Nadezhda, right? And they are uh, Nadia. No, I like your pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, Nadezhda, and, that, that and, Russian is beautiful. And then... You don't really bring this in. Did you find that it was important to try to say, well, maybe there were two shots or some people accused no, they, Stalin of maybe killing her? Nobody knows. No, you know, no. That's another thing that struck me was that nobody knew exactly what happened. And either way, with Mayakovsky, they sort of knew because he invited reporters. Mm-hmm. He had reporters there to shoot him while he was killing himself. And he had Lillian and Osip were there. So he set it up, Mayakovsky. I couldn't get all that into the play, but... Sort of like performance art? Like a performance. Wow. He was going to make it into a performance. He was very close to that edge of um, performing my own suicide for you. Mm. And that's what he did. As soon as the shot went off, the reporters rushed in and they were taking all these pictures. So we have a picture of Mayakovsky on his bed, deathbed, with the bullet hole in his chest. Wow. Talk about drama. I mean, the other great poet, Yesenin, you know, was famously uh, ran out of ink and then cut himself and wrote on the walls of his room in blood and then committed suicide. Think about, you know, how important that Russian soul, you know, is always portrayed in Russian literature. Here you have two examples of it. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. Passionate. I think Murray did a great job. There's a seedy planet of doubt for me that's about Stalin's first wife, Cato. And by talking about her and the kind of Nadja's confusion around why she died creates a feeling in the play of that question. One of the most infuriating and beautiful things about working with Murray is I think he has a way of setting up. He doesn't conclude things for you. He doesn't do your work to make you feel comfortable. And he directs that way, which made me absolutely insane. (laughs) And yet it meant we all had to live in kind of the question mark. We had to live in the uncertainty of who these people are and allowing us to have that change in any given moment, which is a far more open-minded. I think that's much more accurate in terms of humanity. We seek for comfort because we're not. So um, I think the Cato device helped with that kind of conspiratorial. Yeah, no one knows. What, you know, it was probably something like typhoid that Cato. But Stalin did a very heroic thing at that time. He knew she was dying and they were after him. So he was on the lam. He had to elude the police and the, the army and everybody so he could get to her deathbed, Stalin. And he did. He got to her deathbed before she died. It's, it says something about Stalin, and it says something about the the vehemence with which they believed in it. 
And there's some, I think, in some of the literature, this is just afterwards, because he never married again after Nadia committed suicide. No, that's right. And that was 1932, and he died in 53. So that's a long time. And on the other hand, you know, there's some who said he was a womanizer. One would wonder when he had time. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, don't, know how much, I, I don't know how much of that to believe. Yeah. It's like Mayakovsky. He definitely was, right? He was, compli- yeah. he was a very complicated yeah. man. He, he had more than one side. And people are always trying to find the one thing that drove Mayakovsky. But there was no one thing. There was a complicated man who didn't know what he was doing when he went to the store. He started out to go to the store, and he ended up getting sidetracked by the bank. <laughs> and, and then he got sidetracked by this girl he saw walking in front of him. Which one was Mayakovsky? That's amazing. Do you think your ideal person in the audience is someone who knows something about this or who just comes completely fresh? Ideally, it would be someone who understands something about theater. Something about theater. And and what theater can do best. Yeah. Well, I think you guys pull it off amazingly. Thank you. And I hope that this play goes around the country and opens in New York. I think it's amazing that you were able to do this in Los Angeles, right in Hollywood. Well, I want to thank both of you for joining me today. Thanks for having uh, us. In studio, it's been a great pleasure, and I think we could probably go on a lot longer talking about yeah. this. <laughs> but did you want to say one more thing? They were just very interesting people yeah. to try and deal with. And also, let's just very finally say, it must be hard to deal with somebody who's like the mass murderer of the 20th century. <laughs> well, Hitler had him beat. <laughs> That's debatable, but the point is like to, to play somebody who... How can you like him? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing. That's really the thing. There is has to be something likable about him. There has to be. It's human. Yeah. That's what's terrifying. Thank you so much. And Thank I you. think we'll end it there. Maury Sterling, who plays Stalin in Mayakovsky and Stalin, and who you will recognize as Max in Homeland and many other things. Emery Mednick, the award-winning playwright, <laughs> founder, director of the Padua Playwright Padua Hills Playwrights Workshop. Thank you. And the play is at the Lounge Theater in Santa Monica right now. Murray Mednick and Maury Sterling, thanks for joining us on Jacobin Radio. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine, and special thanks to Robert Brenner, and thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Mm-hmm.